It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. The Chaser Report is recorded on Gadigal land. Striving for mediocrity in a world of excellence, this is The Chaser Report. Hello and welcome to The Chaser Report. No, Charles, today it's me, Dom Knight. But we do have the wonderful Tom Ballard here to talk about his new book, I'm Millennial. Hello, Tom. Hello, Dom. Thank you for honouring my wishes. I refuse to appear on any <laughs> podcast with Charles Firth. We've got a lot of lot of history there. A lot of history. Uh, which we can't go into. A lot of bad, but, um, uh, no, bad blood, a lot of awkwardness. Now, look, you've done a shit ton of work on this book, Tom. I, <laughs> I was expecting, you know, I'm Millennial. I was expecting stuff about uh, smashed avocado and property. Yeah. I wasn't expecting... A fairly comprehensive history of Australian labour relations, the economy and the environment. <laughs> Is this what you do after t- tonightly ends? You just pick up a pen and start writing? I think it's what happens when a fucking pandemic ruins everything and you've got a lot of time on your hands. And you start and you're thinking the world is going to shit, as I've been doing for you know quite a few years now. And you just get pulled down every single rabbit hole and you realise, oh... If you want to explain everything about society and give a comprehensive summary of how my entire generation has been screwed over on so many fronts, you really do need to do yeah, a fair bit of reading. And I tried to write the book that I wish someone had handed me the day after Donald Trump was elected and I started losing my mind about the state of the world. They said, look, here's everything you need to know to become the socialist you were born to be. Here we go. Yes. And I mean, I don't want to give a spoiler, but uh, it does seem pretty clear from fairly early on that socialism is where you're heading with this and i'm just imagining basically the book is an argument for why you should join tom ballard aoc and and bernie sanders you know passing a a bucket bong around dreaming of a better world but (laughs) it is incredibly comprehensive does that sound fun it does it look it does sound more fun than the the last few years we've had but the thing that gets me uh, firstly is that the light you, you you define all the generations and what makes me irritated is that I'm Gen X, right? I'm mm-hmm. definitively Gen X. And yet, just about every problem you diagnose, I have. So, I've, I've aged out <laughs> of the problems. I'm, a, I'm having the, all the problems of a millennial without even being in the right age group. Without any of the cred. Yeah, you guys get screwed. It's no like being a Triple J listener when you're 40. <laughs> it's just like, this is not for me, and yet, this is all I have. <laughs> But Scott Morrison is Gen X and Bill Shorten is Gen X, even though they project a very strong boomer energy. So, you know, we should give the disclaimer that it's all bullshit. Most of it's just, you know, helping people to market, you know, advertisers and marketers sell us shit that we don't need. That's what the generational categories have sort of become. But generally speaking, you can sort of make these broad generalizations about stuff that happened to people who were born at a certain time. And if millennials or all of us sort of came of age around the dawning of the new millennium, that's when all the neoliberal restructuring was like fully implemented and we were fully born into the neoliberal society and then bingo, bango, what do you know? The Here world's we on fire. We don't have any rights. We can't afford a house. Everything's privatized and we're all going to die. And you so, do, you know, you, to the you point in which exes don't own assets, you can join us in, in the struggle. Okay, perfect. Them. Yeah. So if, you, if you've done a bad job of being Gen X, you're effectively an honorary <laughs> millennial. Um, very happy to be here. Uh, you have given a nice 
kind of delineation point between the generations, though, which is that your generation is more familiar with um, Smooth Criminal by Alien Ant Farm than the Michael Jackson original, which I must say I, I do sympathise. You've had a rough, you've had a rough uh, <laughs> cultural scene to grow up into with that. This this is being a millennial to me. I first learned about the Smiths by watching Charmed, and the theme song to Charmed was a horrible cover of How Soon Is Now by the Smiths. So, again, that's the postmodern, self-referential reboot culture that I've also been bathed in my entire life. And it means that, yes, we're both nostalgic for something that happened two days ago (laughs) or for a time in which we weren't even alive and our brains are destroyed by the internet and, yeah, pop culture, postmodern nostalgia that doesn't really make any sense so this book is a pretty thorough cataloging of why your generation and and even those younger than you is screwed and more broadly the world um and you break it down into into various catalog uh, into various categories and certainly work work is insecure and the pay is shit seems to be your view of the world how did we get there well, look, work's been shit for a really long time and, you know, it used to be way shitter and one could argue that when the boss used to own you as a slave, that was like heaps worse than what than working at McDonald's today. That's fair enough. But basically, the way that our class system works under capitalism means that these people own stuff and there are these bosses and there's everybody else. We, we don't own stuff. All we have to do to make a living and to survive and get all the state decent stuff we need is to sell our labour time. That's it. That sort of makes us the very broadly defined working class. But when, for our parents' generation, for the boomers, work sucked for them too, but they had the ability to change it because more than half the working population were members of their trade union. And trade unions actually used to do stuff. They used to go on strike and they used to have collective power, which saw, you know, the share of national income peaking in the 1970s at about, you know, 60%. 60% of all national income was going to labor as opposed to capital. That's now completely just totally trended down over the past 50 years because the ruling class waged a war on workers and took away our ability to organize and to go on strike. And unfortunately, the Labor Party and the bureaucracy of the union movement played a big, pretty big role in disciplining naughty workers who were going on strike throughout the 80s and 90s through the Accord process. And all of that culminated in dropping in density, weaker, powerful workers, more powerful bosses, and a much more casualized, weakened, insecure labor market, which means now we don't even think about joining a union. Union density is so low. For young people, it's something like four or five percent of people under twenty-five are members of their trade union, because we don't, we haven't heard about them. We don't know what they do. You know, we just take the weekend for granted, or what have you. And it, oh no, that that actually, the weekend actually exists because people used to go on strike and take on the bosses and demand a better deal, and we don't, we don't do that these days, unfortunately. Yeah. See what I mean? You've done serious work <laughs> putting this book together. I know that wasn't funny at all, was it? No, Damn but it's got to work better. The thing that I like <laughs> about this, Tom, is that, that like many of your stand-up shows, you mix searing reality with um, with jokes, many dirty jokes, but also swear words. An incredible archive of hilarious photos and and trivia from your own youth. I don't know how you've collected, kept all this stuff, but it's very comprehensive. So that sixty percent figure, what is that today? I mean, sixty percent doesn't seem like necessarily that much of the total value produced to go to people who do most of the work to produce it. But I suspect that (laughs) the figure is much lower today in a world where Elon Musk uh, 
is worth more than many countries. Indeed, yes, has a higher GDP, high, higher net worth than the GDP of Sri Lanka, I believe. Old Elon. Oh, that that may change very soon. Yeah, he's doing but his ta- darn best to, to lose that. Yeah, right. <laughs> At the time of recording. Yes, well, I think in 2020, for the first time, that balance uh, slipped under 50%. So less than 50% of the national income, uh, share of national income is going to labour, the people mm. who yeah, actually do stuff to make society function. And, and I think like, that's actually really the story of the past 50 years. Everything has become, we've, we've moved into this asset economy. So it's not about being able to work enough, get a good job, work hard, and you'll get ahead. You'll be able to, say, afford a house, for example. All that's that's gone increasingly for younger people. Now it's about how much do you own? Do you own assets? Did you manage to get into the housing market before it went crazy? Do you have lightly taxed superannuation assets? Do you have a bunch of shares that, is, that are taxed very lightly as well? Because if you own stuff and then you just like give all the stuff that you own to your kids, you'll be fine. You'll be totally sorted. The, the economy works for you just fine. That's no worries. But for everybody else, we're pretty much locked out and all you have to do is work, but that doesn't help you get ahead. Um, that's the world that, that millennials really inherited, yeah. And a lot of this does come down to, as you say in the book, it comes down to the the old-fashioned, I guess, seems outmoded to many class analysis. I mean, we're meant to be living in a classless paradise here in Australia where there's no aristocracy. Yes. There was once a the notion of a bunyip aristocracy. But when you think about how things are divided, okay, there might be kind of mobility between the classes if you happen to make a lot of money. But in fact, it is enormously different if you grow up rich versus growing up poor. And you chart this throughout all aspects, really, of life, whether it's education, housing, labor, those who have mm. um, lead a vastly different life from those who don't. Yeah, that's that's. I think that's really the big light bulb moment for millennial socialists. We've been told that all these concepts of class and 1970s class warfare and the politics of envy, all that's outdated, that's all gone. You know, that's very old-fashioned ideas. And yet then, and then the world goes to shit. Along comes Bernie Sanders, Jeremy Corbyn, who've been saying the same stuff for decades and decades and decades, who hail from that kind of old left tradition. And young people sort of say, well, what they're saying makes sense. It's not like those ideas have been completely resolved. All the things about capitalism totally make sense. In fact, more than ever, we have this this tiny collection of people who own almost everything and then you've got everybody else. And you can't just wish that away by saying, oh, we don't do class politics anymore or, you know, class war is outdated. Stop saying that. Like class war is being waged on ordinary people every single day by the billionaire demon lizards. <laughs> and you that's... That we're just seeing that. We're just recognising that for the real time. And I think that's why leftist socialist politics speak, speaks to young people who are looking down the barrel of renting forever, uh, never being able to build enough wealth to live a decent life and live in security, and, you know, having to deal with a million evil corporations to just get through a single day and, you know, looking around them as the world burns or floods. It all, it all mean, kind this of like is, makes sense. That is the thing that comes. It's a very did, funny book, Dom. It's did such leave a funny out of book. Das Kapital is, um, is the lizard... Hypothesis. He wasn't a big oh, fan he, of the, of the capitalist class, <laughs> but he didn't. He didn't come up with explanation that they're actually shape shifting lizards, and we we owe David Ick a lot for um for adding that to our understanding of the world. Shout outs to Ick. Yeah, Karl Marx was very bitchy. I, I mean, I haven't read a lot of Marx, and I refuse to until until Andrew Bolt does. I refuse to actually sit down and read Capital, but. My understanding is that a huge part of his writings is just him bitching about his critics and just talking shit about their physical appearance and being extremely uncivil and hitting below the belt when it comes to anybody who said that he was incorrect. So I respect that. Which sounds quite like Elon Musk in a way. Um, <laughs> but um, Or me. Yeah, it's yeah. 
No, look, the book is very funny. There are heaps of jokes uh, amidst the searing and depressing take on on reality. Um, yeah. And it, it is true. I mean, work is – it's the insecurity of it that, that gets me. And, I mean, people in our line of work, yes, admittedly, people like you and I have chosen to, to work in the media and, and that's um, something we did presumably because we loved it and thought it would be really fun, which it's proven to be most of the time. But the insecurity of work that I guess we experience somewhat through choice having decided to work – in fields like comedy, is just so common these days. And it seems mm. as though for so many years, the push has been to try and make everybody into contractors. I mean, if you look at the Uber drivers and delivery, you know, couriers and so on, uh, pretending that everyone's their own little small business and therefore that mm. employers don't have to do anything for them. And, and this just seems a part of the broader movement of of selling people on individualism that isn't actually in their interests when they think about it. Yes, and just deferring to the market on every front, right? So the labor market is just a market and people's labor is just a commodity commodity that can be bought and sold by richer people who can buy and sell workers as much as they want. And it, it's never going to produce a fair society because the interests of the, of the owners and the bosses are diametrically opposed to everybody else. The boss wants to cut costs and maximize profits. We want to be paid as much as money as possible to live a decent life. Okay, They're just constantly going at each other. And again, I just think it's a fantasy when the Labor government says we can bring all these people together. We can bring the BCA together with the ACTU and we could all come to a sensible solution to our problems in the middle where, in which everyone will be happy. And you know, no, no, you won't because capital wants more capital and wants to screw over labor, will happily screw over labor in the process of achieving that. But isn't it um, fascinating that this stuff was pointed out years ago? I mean, it, these are not new ideas, the notion no. that, that the ruling class, that businesses are actually not on your side. And yet, partly because some of the people who took these ideas and created a totalitarian state hurt the brand somewhat, Tom. Um, <laughs> yeah. But but also there's this this idea of false consciousness, which is one of the things that I vaguely remember from uni, is that mm. the these systems create a set of beliefs that things are okay and that that, that things are as they're meant to be, and that um, there you know the American dream. If you just work hard enough, you can achieve an amazing lifestyle. And this seems to be the thing that, that so many of us are sold on it and have been for so long is that there's there's nothing we can do about this things are as they should be it's a fair and just system yeah. that can't possibly be changed and i mean i gotta say hats off to capitalism and for all those involved for creating that system because <laughs> that is an overwhelming belief there are there's not a huge ground swell of people at the moment you seem to be trying to start one with the book tom but there's not a huge ground swell of people going hang on this system is absolutely fucked and unfair let's change it which <laughs> you would think might be a more popular view at this point in our history. Well, hang on. I think there's heaps of people saying this system is fucked. L the let's change it bit, that's an extra little step. Mm. And I think a lot of people don't get to that bit because they've had lots of people telling them that they're going to change the system for a very long time and nothing seems to change because of how screwed up the system is. So all these people come in with promises about how things are going to change when actually they don't, they don't really want to change that much or they actually can't change that much mm. because their hands are so much tied because of state capture. Uh, and also, they're probably not into let's changing the entire system because they're too busy trying to deal with the consequences of the system. Like, I have a lot of sympathy for people who aren't politically engaged because they're too busy working free jobs to pay the goddamn rent or to raise their kids or whatever. Like, you, you, can, un you can totally understand why, you know, this idea of young people being disengaged from politics. It's like, well you got to show us a little something here. There's got to be a two-way street. Politics actually has to represent some kind of level of change. We need to be able to imagine and see some path 
by joining a union, by joining a political party that won't make us want to stab our own eyes out with a pen, you know, like that's that's kind of on politics. So I, I understand why why that's the case. But yes, you're totally right. And again, Gramsci, which which I haven't read and I refuse, I refuse to read any of the original texts, but I've, <laughs> I've read some tweets about him. And yes, the way capitalism just creates an ideology and convince and we just if we don't see through the matrix, you just realize that everything in our society is based around these kind of prevailing ideology, which is. Yeah, work hard and you'll you'll do great. If you're unemployed, if you're not happy in your life, that's entirely your fault as an individual. It has nothing to do with the bigger structures that make up our society. I think unemployment is the big one, right? So after the Depression or after World War II, the expectation was the government should provide jobs to get people to work, mm. right? We all said, oh, yeah, unemployment is like a government responsibility. Then neoliberalism comes along, the economic crisis of the 70s, and suddenly, you know, they're all dull bludges and it's actually your problem. Even though we need unemployment, like there was a deliberate level of unemployment in the economy in order to keep a tamper down on inflation, right? That's literally economic policy that there needs to be a certain amount of people unemployed at any one time. Like that's what the like the central bank and all the economist heads actually want. Like we can't actually get to serious, meaningful, full employment, even though that's like a deliberate strategy. We still hang shit on people who can't get a job because not enough jobs exist and we make fun of them on current affair. Like that's that's ideology, my friend. It does seem to be, but you do admit, though, Tom, that um, as much as as you hang shit on Elon Musk, and and I can see the logic of that, he has fixed one of the problems you identify in the book already, which is that you out yourself as a blue che- a blue check member of the Twitterati <laughs> yes. in the course of the book, and and Elon's opened that up. Eight bucks a month, anyone can be Tom Ballard on Twitter. Oh, you can't impersonate I Tom love- Ballard. I think you this can is be, a chase a headline. You can what? be as ticked. Was it a check? Yes, wasn't it a chase a headline? Uh, Elon Musk charges eight dollars a month for free speech or something. Don't like that. Um, yes. Say so, now, this is the big question: Should I invest in maintaining my blue check? Blue blue check? Because I always thought that you know, post revolution, it'll be mm. very easy to identify who should be first against the wall. You just get all the Twitter blue checks. Obviously, they're all class enemies. Get rid of them, and that made me feel bad because I'm one of them. But yeah. if I no longer have the blue tick and I'm a leader of the revolution, then I think it's you're probably a good time to lose the check. Fair point. Um, but a lot of this, when we talk about this in Australia, everyone's symbol in Australia of, of wealth and security comes down to housing. And um, as an example of how you, you uh, kind of spice the uh, economic analysis with jokes, it's a very good insight. If you don't have a house, you have nowhere to masturbate. And I, th- I think that speaks to all of us. Uh, a house is somewhere, it's not somewhere just to lay your head. It's somewhere to, where you lay your head. And uh, and gain a, a fleeting moment of pleasure in this horrible world. Well, I mean, some people are masturbating on the street. That's that's certainly true. Some of the people who that's are true. Really at the end of the housing that's true. crisis. I, I can't are, say are I've tried it, but like, can't knock it till you've tried it. <laughs> yes, look, that's just an example of just me laying out. Hey, homes are good. Most of the chapters start with some basics, like we need a decent job to have a good life. Mm. You need somewhere to live. Education is nice. Okay, so there's just these basic premises that we come to these sort of big picture things. Services should be run well in the cheapest and most efficient possible way. You know, these sort of basic premises start each chapter. And in the housing one, I'm saying housing is a basic human need. But hey, what do you know? In Australia, we've had the genius idea to turn them into products and commodities and financialize the housing market. So they're not just somewhere that you live, you know, as a human being. It's not shelter now. These are um, financial assets and asset classes that we can use to build wealth and get ahead by owning hundreds of them and exploiting other people's need for housing. That's that's the genius move we've made. I must say, um, I'm impressed that there's a lot of sources quoted in the book, and 
the fact that you managed to get 2GB in there for a particularly delicious <laughs> moment where some guy rings up about uh, about how it's tough for landlords as well and, and Ben Fordham, yes. to his credit, asks yes. the key question, doesn't he, Tom? He says, how many investment properties do you own? And this gentleman, David, I think his name is, I forget now. Can I ask you oh, out of mate. interest, how many you've got, David? How many rental properties do you own? Well, um, okay, 283. 283 rental properties? Just the, just a cool 283 investment properties that he owns. And he said he's works really hard for those. Mm, well, you, you're, not rich in a, you're not rich in this country till you hit 300. That's the rule I've understood. <laughs> Is this person a member of the Senate by any chance? I guess they thought they all have multiple. How can they possibly make decisions about housing policy when they all have investment properties? Or if they don't now, they, they're trying to pay one off with their wage in Canberra. Again, this is just the politics of envy, Dom. And then and you should just focus on your own work. I again, do. Just, I envy them. They're on honestly. our side. Labor is on our side. And no one will be left behind. None of our tenants will be left behind, even though we're jacking up the rate by 60% because uh, we need to cover, yeah, <laughs> the, the repayments on all our other investment properties. It's crazy. It's an insane system. One house, new rule. Everyone, one house each. No one gets a beach house until everyone's got one house and then we move on, okay? But but where's the incentive? Where's the incentive to go and create oh. and work and and just acquire and negative gear? Where's the incentive to negative gear? It's so much hard work involved in just owning a house, isn't it? Like mm. you just, every day, you're just owning that house and you're working hard on owning that house and it's just like, I own and that house. And admin. I'm just, I'm I mean, just flat out working the agent, hard owning this house. The agent will get in touch saying, you know, do you want to repair the bathroom? And you've got to basically, right. I think the policy is you put that off for a few months as long as you possibly can, sure. just to yeah. remind the, the tenant that they're tenants, just to make <laughs> sure they stay in their place. That's the, that's the way you do it. But you have particular contempt, and I, I really enjoyed your contempt for those young people we hear in the, in the media who own a huge number of houses that have, have, have rolled out to show us that it is possible that the system is fair if you just got a bit of gumption, a little bit of true grit, you too can be a landlord. They're all insane. They've got these barometers. Like They, literally, they go on the Today Show, whatever they say, I've always wanted to own 29 houses by the time I turn 29. And I think you're not raised right. Your parents did something wrong to you. That's, that's a wrong thing. That's a bad thing to want. And it's even a worse thing to actually do. And I guess by, by every year they turn a new age and they increase the number of properties that they own. They're incredibly leveraged. Uh, their entire life, their entire job is owning houses. And even though, again, I'm sure they read the news, there's a housing crisis. Every single day you probably read a story about how people are struggling to find anywhere just to live or being as you say, taken to the cleaners by their evil demon landlords, these people seem to have no problem with the idea that they need to own lots and lots of houses and make as much money as possible out of the very crisis that they are making worse. It's not right, I tell you. Yeah, well, maybe they'll read the book. There's, there's one or two people you quote in the book who I think <laughs> if they come across it, they'll, uh, they'll get a little bit of an education, I, I suspect. And, and you do talk about education. Um, it's not every author who... Uh, Post a photo of them with their uh, U-A-I-T-E-R or whatever it's called in Victoria. <laughs> and you and your brother are fucking nerds, Tom Ballard. We are nerds. He's a bigger nerd than me, though. He got a VCN to score of 99.90 and I got a pathetic, miserable 99.80. And shamed so your family. family there. I did shame my family there, yes. I didn't do any maths or science, so I feel like it's... I did both drama and theatre studies in my year 12 year, so it's, it's pretty They should have posters of you. They should have posters of you saying you can actually get a good score doing theatre and drama. That's because that's not how, that's not what you, you're told. You're told if you do that art stuff, it's it's a disaster. That is true. Yes, and yes, 
I remember students in my year 12 who chose subjects specifically for the scaling mm. or whatever. Yeah. The most miserable students hands down in year 12, just like having the worst time being like, I don't understand any of this. I hate it. But the scaling, oh, the scaling will help me. But I mean, Ugh. education is the thing that transforms people's lives, isn't it? I mean, this is, this is the way to, I guess, um, look at redistributing things and create more opportunities for people. Admittedly, that does accept it. That does kind of accept the premise of a world where people who graduate from things like law deserve to earn more money. But nevertheless, <laughs> I mean, this is where I this is where I learned about all this stuff was at university, where you yes. start looking at the the economy and the way that the way that rules are made in society. And when you find out what mm. they are, then you can start thinking about whether they're fair. And these might be conversations mm. people don't get to have in the current education system if they don't get to faff around at uni like I did, and, and get to think about all these things while bludging off our parents <laughs> That's the dream. and all the government. I don't know how, I guess you guys are the exception, but I don't know how radicalizing law degrees are or the kind of people who are attracted to law Well, you wouldn't degrees, know because you got into think. one and dropped out, Tom yeah. Ballard. I did drop you out. In grace. That's true. You made up, you opened up a spot for someone who, who wanted to be there, I suspect. I don't know what happened because I got a scholarship to do that course and I was thinking about it. I assume... The uni just saved the money. They didn't reallocate that scholarship money oh, wow. to, to some, anybody else. Some issue. poor striver out there <laughs> who didn't get the scholarship because dilettante Ballard wanted to go and do comedy six weeks into uni. Talk and, about, you know, yeah. having persisted with the degree, I think yours was the better approach, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The Chaser Report. Now with extra whispers. Yes, look, I think sometimes education, people are like, education is going to fix everything and all we need to do is give everyone a good education. And sometimes you go, well, not necessarily, you know. That's, that's not necessarily the civil bullet to solve all of society's issues. But having said that, education is very nice in all the various forms it takes, from vocational education to university to, yeah, a good primary and secondary education or any kind of training that people want to undertake, for sure. But again, that's another thing we've turned into an economic asset, not a social good, not mm. something that a rich society should provide its young people because learning stuff is good and broadening one's mind is generally considered to be a really nice thing. No, no. Now it's just the thing that you get, the accreditation you get so that you earn enough money and you help capitalism keep turning round and round. And, you know, once you pursue that long enough, that's when you get to the insane reforms that the coalition government brought in, which said, if you do an arts degree, you're going to pay a million dollars for that as a punishment for daring <laughs> to study the humanities, you little you little Marxist genderqueer cuck. That's basically what uh, Scott Morrison said. I mean, it, that's it a bad is, way to run society. It is strange, isn't it? But I, I know people who um, have, have followed all this principles. They, they studied law. They're partners in law firms in some cases. They've ticked all the boxes that the system told them to tick. But even they, and these are people in their 40s now, even they don't feel any security about being able to afford the future and being able to afford housing, even in the places where they, where they grew up. I have no idea hmm. where the housing has all gone. I mean, maybe just to the 29-year-olds who bought 29 houses. But the people who, who've played by the 
rules of the system, let alone um, people who object to the rules or, or don't follow, the people who've actually done what the system tells you to do don't yes. feel secure and are fearful about the future and not having enough money to retire and not being able to afford to educate their children on whatever they might want to do. So who no. are the people who have all the money and own all this stuff? I'm, I'm baffled. <laughs> when I read the, about the property, property prices and people paying three, four, five million dollars for properties, who the fuck are they? Because I well, grew up as part of the elite is, and it, even I don't know who they are. <laughs> You're a downwardly mobile elite. I'm yeah, a broke-ass I mean, member. That, no, I, I, look, I, not unlike you, I was lucky enough to get um, fancy education and so on. Mm. Uh, and, and so I got to meet people who did these sorts of things. I, I did law and all that. But, yep. yes, I was one of the brokest people in, always at my, at my private school <laughs> and at my fancy university. I mean, I'm from that world. Okay. But I never belonged in it because I never had the money to actually yeah, feel comfortable. Them. Well, when it comes to housing, like literally, I think 70% of all housing wealth is in the hands of the boomers. Like people 55 and over hold 70% of all housing wealth in this country. So that's the answer when it comes to where all the, the housing cash goes. And you understand why no politician is brave enough to suggest that maybe house prices should go down because that would be verbatim and that would make the voters very angry. Um, and yes, totally take your point. People who graduate, like graduate unemployment is increasing and the insecurity of graduate jobs. Most jobs, well not most jobs, but increasingly more and more jobs require a, an undergraduate degree too. That's the other crazy thing with mm. student debt. We tell young people to get a good education and then we say, oh, suddenly because you want a good education, we're gonna saddle you with an extraordinary amount of debt. It's like, you told us to get this. Again, we're doing all the right things according yeah. to you, Even if you but tick the no boxes. one wants to shoulder the cost of actually doing that. Yeah, and then as so. your book points out, the boxes are fairly stupid actually, and the, the whole system is, is, is problematic. So what are we, uh, and I guess another tier which we should touch on briefly is, is the environment. I mean, this is, if you want depressing subjects in your book, it goes <laughs> even far beyond the labour market and, and housing and, and education. What the fuck do we even do, do with that? How, do you, how did you look at this in such detail and write chapters on the environment without just basically going, you know what, I give up. This is too misery inducing. I mean, it, it's just, every time you read a headline about the environment, it just makes you want to there, no. punch things. No, there are now two seasons in Australia, on fire and underwater. That's basically yeah. what we've got to. And even if we changed everything tomorrow, we did all the right things immediately, you know, you've still got all this locked in heating and climate change is going to be a factor of human life on this planet for the rest of the century. There's nothing to be done about that at this stage. There's, I think, a front page of The Economist on the day we're recording this saying 1.5 degrees is probably over. We're probably not going to be able to limit it to that. Mm. So, yeah. And that's bummer. The Economist, by um, the way. Like the, yes. the the main newspaper of capital, like that's if they're aware of it, what the hell, man? Yes, I mean I would blame a lot of people who read and work at the Economist. Sure, say to play probably, but but that's uh, where we're at. The fact is that know. even they're making headlines about <laughs> it, and this is Very a problem strange. that, as you mentioned, this is inter intergenerational stuff. I mean, you talk about this in terms of wealth and housing and so on. The notion that younger people are supposed to somehow stand on the shoulders of those who come before them rather than being fucked over mm. by them. But that will never be more true than it is with the planet because boomers aren't going to see what they've done and the generations yeah. before them. Sure. Well, again, you know, I don't, hopefully by the end of the book, you're realizing that while we've had a lot of jokes at boomers' expense and they are funny. And oh, don't you back down angry, now, really Ballard. <laughs> no, no, no. But again, it's class analysis, right? If we were born when our parents were, we'd have done all the same shit, okay? Then mm. they were just people living their lives, making all the rational decisions, okay? They didn't have much. Ordinary people don't have much power over shaping society or macroeconomic forces. 
So it's not like they were laughing and saying, yeah, hard, this is going to screw up our, our kids tomorrow. That's not the case. And today there are mil- millennials who have more money than anybody else in human history. And there are boomers who are homeless. So again, you've you got to bring it back to class. No, it's true. But also with climate, it's infuriating because the people who knew, who did actually know what was happening, that fossil fuels were cooking the planet, and that was going to be really bad, was the forces of fossil fuel capital and some scientists at the top. There's this report from 1960s with Lyndon Johnson was handed from his scientific committee saying, hey, this, this, is, this is a bad. I mean, the science of climate change dates back to like the 1860s or whatever, and we'd figured out the link to fossil fuels in the early 1900s. But, you know, when it got serious at the highest levels of government was in the early 60s. And from that point, we really probably should have seriously changed things and started asking some big questions. But hey, what do you know? The forces of fossil fuel capitalism used all the money and wealth that they've got out of you know, digging up stuff and selling off resources to fund campaigns of disinformation and try and convince us that it's not a problem and that we shouldn't change anything. So that's once again a beautiful example of capitalism working to <laughs> kill us all uh, for the sake of profit. Um, Which it does very well. You got to the, the you doff your cap to it. It's a pretty impressive adversary. It's really, no, it's very good. And it's very good at profiting off its own critiques. You know, everyone doing art and, tr- and hey, I'm trying to sell a book here, critiquing capitalism. And I want people to pre-order that book so I can make more money. It's it's genius. And and you're someone who sells tickets to shows and needs yeah. audience with money and all this sort of stuff. No, well, I, I guess the thing that you try, which is bravest of all, after fairly comprehensively diagnosing all these problems in a couple of hundred pages with graphs in, in places... Um, is you try and actually come up with something constructive to say at the end of it, which, I mean, frankly, after after the book, thank God, because it's a pretty pretty depressing read in places. Thank God there's <laughs> jokes in it because um, that, to, to get you to keep turning the pages, jokes plus um, amusingly embarrassing photos of Tom and family from from their past. Your family must mm-hmm. uh, must really enjoy you scraping through the archives. <laughs> um, where did you come to? We, we mentioned um, socialism, democratic socialism. I mean. And redistribution as a concept and, and the, the, the bold notion of somehow not destroying the planet. What does that mm. look like in practice? Do, do people, I mean, millennials are 21% of the population. There's a lot of votes out there. Yeah. What are people doing with them? Uh, is it possible to change within the system and, and simply vote for different people, do you think? Well, voting for different people would be really nice, particularly if people are currently voting for the Labor Party, expecting that to bring about the kind of change that we need. In my personal opinion, that is not going to be the case. In many ways, the Labor Party completely absorbed and implemented neoliberalism and is unable at, at in, its, in its current state to seriously radically change things and doesn't seem that interested in doing that anyway right wants to stay in the sensible center etc etc and steady the ship as it goes right um so that's bad the australian greens are by no means perfect whatsoever but the thing that brought me to them in 2020 was was this you know this move particularly within the queensland greens to pretty explicitly say capitalism is bad neoliberalism is the problem we should have big bold populist left-wing policies that means taxing the rich to make life better for ordinary people and to get more democracy going everywhere. So that, that's the thing that appeals to me about where the Australian Greens could be. We've still got a very long way to go, of course, as people are aware, you know, we're on, what are we, 40% or something? So work on that would be great. And that's certainly where my political affiliations have, have ended up. I am a member of my union, but again, yes, as a, as a self-employed contractor, uh, I don't, I often don't have other colleagues to organise with or... Mm 
uh, one specific evil boss to take on. So that's kind of annoying. Imagine if comedians and did unionise. That would be that would be a fascinating experiment in labour relations. It would be well. That happened in the seventies at the Comedy Store when uh, really? the Comedy Store in LA was ripping everybody up. Yeah, people like people like Dave Letterman, Letterman all these cool seventies uh, comics tried to unionise to force Mitzi Shaw, who ran the Comedy Store, to pay people for their comedy. And Jay fucking Leno crossed the picket line because, of course, he did because he's Jay fucking Leno. This but, is the um, mother of Paulie Shaw. She she had a lot to, yes. to answer for. She sounded terrible and was absolutely exploiting people for their work. But yes, on those rare occasions, that's worth doing. There's no great, you know, silver bullet solution at the end of the book. I suppose by the end of the book, I'm trying to explain how I got to democratic socialism, or at the very least, how you realise after a while, oh, the problem is capitalism. The political economy is really the main game with almost everything, all the culture war stuff. It's, It's great for comedy. It's fun to talk about and laugh about. Mostly it doesn't matter. The main thing is follow the money and... Is this going to make ordinary working people better off? Does this benefit the people who already own lots of stuff? Fuck rich people. That's the main enemy, you know? And the rest of us, the working class, white, black, gay, straight, trans, cisgendered, able-bodied, disabled, whatever, we have way more in common with each other than we do with billionaires like, you know, Clive Palmer and Gina Reinhardt. So that's probably where the fight should be. That's that's where we sort of end up. I guess in a democracy, the strange thing about it is that it it comes down to what individuals think is important or what their worldview is. And this is the thing, if, if, if more people thought like you, if more people read the book and reached the conclusions that you've read, if, if more mm. people signed on to Team Ballard and, and um, <laughs> you know, followed the arguments that you painstakingly loud in, in the book, then you would have a, a change in politics, at least, at least to some degree. Whereas, I guess from your perspective, it looks a bit like Turkey's voting for Christmas at the moment. People vote for... Um, the entrenched system because they think that voting otherwise will will take away what they've got. And in a country that is mm. relatively rich, uh, which Australia certainly is in global terms, it is fascinating how successfully, um, you know, the side of politics that is very clearly on the side of the, of the wealthiest people has managed to get the, the majority of Australians time and time again thinking, yep, mm. that's actually, that's our side. We're on the same side as the, as the current system. Even though if you look at the notion of everyone kind of banding together in their class interests, that's not what they do. No. So, I mean, that, that is, again, the neoliberal era, the age of individualism. Reduce everything to the individual level. So don't think about society in terms of structures. Don't think about yourself as part of a class or, you know, dismiss all any notions of social solidarity. The idea that people on the other side of the country, rich people on the other side of the country should pay taxes so that, you know, you have the basic needs of your life met that's all nonsense that's silliness no we're all just individuals living our lives in the market competing against one another i mean that is that is the genius of that revolution um that has i think yes brought society to to where we are now which is often a very lonely society a society that doesn't work very well and a society with not only massive inequality but increasing inequality and that is the crazy thing of the boomer era post world war ii inequality was actually falling in Western capitalist societies. Okay, you actually, it was trending down. 70s changes everything and that explodes again. And now we've got, you know, 2,000 billionaires who own, and the 10 richest men own more than the bottom half of humanity, right? That's actually a reverse trend um, over the past 50 years. So again, that's a, that's a great sales pitch that capitalism has and that neoliberalism has. You're an individual. Don't worry about anybody else. Just focus on your own life. You don't owe anything to anyone and we don't live in a society. And I guess 
I think that's bullshit. I think most people really, if they think about it, know that's bullshit. And that's hopefully the, the hope that stays alive. The idea that we can recognize that as being bullshit and that we do have obligations to each other. And Australia is great. And at the end, I'm trying to make the point. We don't live in the worst possible world, even though I sound like a bit of a misery guts reading this book, I suppose. There's lots of ways in which Australia is great. The frustration comes when you think about how much better this country could be and how much harder life is when it really doesn't need to be. And the only reason it is as hard as it is for a lot of people is because some extremely greedy rich people at the top want to hold on to as much as they possibly can and aren't prepared to give up their yachts for the sake of other people being able to, you know, not be in poverty. So It is bizarre when you hear about people ordering multiple hundred million dollar super yachts and yet not even for Mm. a moment going, that would feed a lot of people. That'd be good. But yeah, think of the would, yacht makers and the jobs that. that they need to fulfill. Anyway, Tom, congratulations. <laughs> <coughs> congratulations on being an individual contractor uh, who's released <laughs> onto the free market a, a product, a unit. This book called yes. I Millennial comes out at the end of November. All the best with making heaps of money and being able to buy a, a super yacht and forget about all the stuff that got you to where you are. Thank you, Dom. Go stage three tax cuts. Yay. Our gears from Road with part of the ACAST Creator Network, and we'll catch you tomorrow. And check out Tom's podcast, Like I'm a Six-Year-Old, while you're at it. Oh, thanks, Tom. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.